Welcome to this lecture on WTO dispute settlement. Um, my name is uh, Peter van den Bossen and I am Director of Studies of the World Trade Institute in Bern and Professor of International Economic Law at the Faculty of Law of uh, the University of Bern. Between uh, 2009 and 2017, I um, served as WTO appellate judge on the WTO appellate body and I served um, in 2015 as its uh, chairperson. Um, this lecture is about WTO dispute settlement and what I would like to discuss with you um, are the following questions. First of all, how relevant um, is WTO dispute settlement? You'll see me being very enthusiastic about uh, this dispute settlement system, uh, but is my enthusiasm justified? We'll spend some time on that question. How relevant is WTO dispute settlement? Secondly, um, we look into what is so special about WTO dispute settlement special when you compare it with other state-to-state -state dispute settlement um, systems. Third, we will ask ourselves the question, how does the WTO settle disputes? And um, in answering that question, um, you'll see that, we, that the WTO actually settles disputes um, in, in various ways, or at least has various methods of international dispute settlement to its disposal. Four, I want to talk to you about who does what in WTO dispute settlement. In other words, we will look at um, the institutions and the mandate um, the various mandates of uh, these institutions uh, dealing with the resolution of disputes. Fifth, and we're almost at the end of our list, um, what happens when in WTO dispute settlement? And um, in answering that question, we look at the process of dispute settlement and we look at procedures. But I promise you that we will not go into um, uh, detailed uh, discussions uh, of uh, procedural issues. And then finally, the question, what are the dangers um, facing WTO dispute settlement? And I would like to note in this uh, context uh, that uh, currently the WTO dispute settlement system um, is uh, challenged uh, by one of uh, the world's uh, major trading entities. Um, challenged uh, in a way that has plunged the system uh, into an unprecedented crisis. A crisis uh, that raises questions as to whether um, the multilateral rules-based dispute settlement system that the WTO dispute settlement system is, whether that system um, has a future. First, I promised you that I would talk about the relevance of WTO dispute settlement. Is my enthusiasm uh, for this system uh, justified? And what we'll do is we'll look at the uh, number of disputes um, that states brought uh, to Geneva to the WTO for resolution. 
and we look at um, what this dispute settlement system produced. Uh, the number of reports, uh, and reports, I'd like you to understand this, reports is WTO speak for judgments. Don't talk about judgments in the context of WTO dispute settlement, we talk about reports. So we'll first look at the number of disputes and the number of reports. Secondly, we'll look at um, who were the complainants and who were the respondents. Um, who used the dispute settlement system against whom? Four, um, we'll look at the agreements, the WTO agreements that were at issue. Was it trade in goods? Was it trade in services? Was it intellectual property law? Um, what were the, uh, the issues uh, that came up? Which agreements were at issue? And then finally, and perhaps that's the most important thing that we'll look at, um, is the success of the system. Because any dispute settlement system um, would not be worth the paper it's written on if there is at the end of the day no compliance with um, the, um, the rulings um, of um, the court. Um, and um, there I'll be happy to say that um, this compliance rate um, linked to the WTO dispute settlement system is um, impressively high. Okay, to start with the number of disputes that was brought uh, to uh, the WTO. Um, the system was uh, started huh, um, in 1995. And um, so we're looking at a period from 1995 uh, to uh, 2018. Uh, where today we're the 6th of February. So in that period, um, a total of 538 uh, distinct disputes were brought uh, to Geneva for resolution. That excludes uh, 60 disputes uh, that were really about um, the question whether um, a country that had been found to have acted inconsistent with WTO law, whether that uh, country had then subsequently complied with um, the uh, earlier rulings. There are about 60 disputes um, in addition to the 538 uh, that were original uh, cases. Now, if you look at um, this uh, statistic or this, this graph, it's more a graph, um, the number of cases that were brought in, you'll see uh, ups and downs, ups and downs. Um, and particularly in the beginning, um, they're quite impressive ups. Um, they're not really representative. Re representative. Um, uh, many of these cases were actually old cases that were not brought um, uh, in under the old dispute settlement system, but that were brought um, at the very beginning of the new system. So they kept them in reserve and that's why the numbers uh, in these early years were so high. But as from um, 2000 um, uh, onwards, um, I think you can say that we have, on average, uh, about 17 uh, cases uh, that were uh, brought. Um, as I said, it goes up and down, and don't ask me why. Um, I, have, I have many theories uh, as to, but my theories are as worth, as much worth as, as anybody else's theory. Um, it goes up and down. Yeah? Uh, the most important thing, of course, is the total number, 538. And let's keep that number in, 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 um, in mind. Um, now, that's what went into the system. Question is, uh, what did the system produce uh, with all these disputes? Um, that's, 
And that goes, first of all, to the question how many reports were produced, how many judgments were produced. At first instance, and we'll come back to that later, huh? WTO dispute settlement is at two instances. In the first instance, uh, where you have panels looking at the dispute, what comes out as a panel report, huh? a panel judgment. Um, panels uh, produced 230 panel reports. The appellate body, who sits in appeal huh, on uh, these panel reports, produced um, so far, in that period from 1995 uh, to uh, 2018, 133 uh, reports. And um, I ask you to keep that number in mind, 133. Come back to that later. Now, very typical uh, about WTO dispute settlement um, is that um, actually the system prefers you not to go to court. It's one of the features, which I'll, I'll briefly say more later. Um, it prefers you not to go to court. It prefers you to reach amicable solutions uh, to your dispute. And what is amazing is that in 20%, and that's a fairly high percentage, 20% of the cases, um, such an amicable um, solution is found. Huh? Uh, that can either be uh, in the form of a mutually agreed solution, or it can be that the complainant, uh, after further negotiations, consultations with the respondent, decides to drop the case, 20%. Um, one more word on um, the number of active disputes. How many disputes are currently, uh, uh, and we're talking uh, the 6th of uh, February, uh, 2018, how many disputes are currently before uh, at the WTO? Uh, um, at the first, the very first stage of the process, the consultations, the negotiations, 25 uh, distinct disputes. At the panel stage, and that's the first stage of adjudication, um, 26. And before the appellate body, at this moment, seven, seven cases. Uh, and also there, I would like you to keep uh, in mind um, the number seven. The question that I always ask my students huh, when I say, well, the appellate body produced um, over the last 22 years, produced 133 uh, judgments. And there are currently seven cases before the appellate body. Is that a lot? Huh? That's the question. Is that a lot? Should we be impressed? Well, uh, you always have smart students, so, so they say, well, it depends, Professor. Yeah. And they're right, it depends. It depends on what you compare it with. If you compare it with um, the production of the uh, European Court of Justice, um, this is not impressive at all. Huh? Uh, if you compare it with uh, national courts, uh, this is certainly not impressive. But you have to compare it with things that are comparable. And what is comparable? Um, well, other state-to-state -state, um, courts and tribunals, such as, well, such as, of course, the first thing that we think about is the International Court of Justice. Now, I told you that the appellate body produced 133 appellate body reports huh, over the last 22 years. What did the International Court of Justice produce? Well, they produced 70 judgments and six advisory opinions. So let's take these two together. Huh? 
76. 76 versus 133. Uh, pending cases, and I checked this yesterday uh, on the internet, pending cases, uh, 14. Yeah? Um, but um, none of them is currently being heard or under deliberation. Yeah? So, um, just as an aside, um, uh, the International Court of Justice has 15 judges. Uh, I'll tell you later that the appellate body has seven, seven in good times, and we're not in good times at the moment, huh? but well, should have seven. And that in terms of budget, uh, the budget of the International Court of Justice is 250% bigger uh, than the budget of the appellate body. Um, 67, sorry, what do I say? Huh? Um, 76, 76 judgments by and advisory opinions uh, by the International Court of Justice as compared uh, to the um, 133 um, reports by the appellate body. Um, let's look at, at another court, another tribunal, and perhaps even that is, a, is, is, is even a better comparison because while the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction over uh, the whole of international law, WTO uh, only has jurisdiction over uh, a part of international law, international trade law. Um, so let's compare it with, with another court, another tribunal that has limited uh, jurisdiction in that sense, such as the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea, ITLOS. 21 judges, a beautiful customs built courthouse in Hamburg. Do you hear the jealousy in my voice? Um, that, uh, um, what did they produce? Since 1997, no sorry, 1996, and they started a year later than the, um, uh, than the WTO dispute settlement system, um, judgments 22 and two advisory opinions. Pending cases, one. Now, um, a court lawyer would say, I rest my case. Um, but it's not that simple, of course, because uh, there are those uh, that would argue, well, yes, but I mean, the International Court of Justice deals with important matters. Yeah? Um, important matters. While the, the appellate body uh, deals with very, very technical trade matters, uh, uh, which are of interest to um, a very small group of uh, people. They're of little interest to the general public. Uh, I would say that um, <laughs> there are definitely appellate body cases uh, or cases that went uh, to the appellate body that are extremely technical and I admit extremely boring. Um, but um, there are also many others. Um, there are quite a number of disputes um, that went to the appellate body that concern, huh, for example, um, national uh, legislation, national measures uh, for the protection of the environment. Examples, um, the US shrimp case, the Brazil retreaded tires case, the US tuna case, um, the Canada renewable energy case, uh, all these cases um, concern um, national legislation, national measures for the protection of uh, the environment. There are also quite a number of cases that deal with national legislation, national measures for the protection of public health. 
the easy Holman's case, uh, the easy asbestos case, the um, U.S. clove cigarettes case. They're cases that dealt with uh, national legislation, national measures for the protection of public models. And, and you will immediately see that these are highly sensitive issues. Huh? Public health, protection of the environment, protection of uh, public uh, morals, these are um, very sensitive uh, cases um, which obviously generate uh, much public attention. Um, I could go through a number of other cases. Um, they're, they're, they're cases that dealt with what I would call foreign policy. Huh? Um, the cases that deal with agricultural policy, which is all in many countries a very sensitive thing. Uh, um, uh, industrial policy. Huh? Uh, what are the Airbus and Boeing subsidy cases? What are they about? They're about industrial policy. Um, there's cases about the sovereignty over national over natural resources. Uh, uh, the China raw materials case, the China rare earths case, um, and their cases on um, measures that are taken uh, to fight climate change. Uh, so my point here is um, that, um, that many of the, the cases that are brought uh, to the WTO dispute settlement system and that end up at the appellate body when there is an appeal, that many of these cases um, deal with, um, with politically very sensitive um, issues, um, uh, do not just uh, deal with, with, with uh, extremely technical um, uh, issues um, such as the calculation of an anti-dumping margin. Huh? which happens to be a very sensitive issue uh, in some capitals, um, but um, most people will not lose much sleep over that. Um, but they will lose, lose sleep over measures for the protection of the environment, measures for the protection of public health, and so on. Um, so I come back to the comparison in terms of production. Uh, the appellate body has been and with it the whole dispute settlement of the um, WTO has been very productive. Yeah. Point one. Going to the second point um, as to uh, the relevance of the system, who has used the system and against whom. Uh, looking at who the, who the complainants have been over the period of the last 22 years, um, it is quite striking um, that, but not surprising, uh, that the United States has been the most active user of this dispute settlement system. 21% of all the cases that were brought to Geneva were brought by the United States. Um, a close second here is the European Union uh, with 18% of the cases. And then you've got the other high-income uh, countries with 19%. And then there's the whole group of developing countries, which includes upper-middle-income, uh, lower-middle-income, and low-income countries, 42%. Uh, so 42% of the cases were brought by developing countries. I have to... Um, to admit that this data, and, and you may uh, now see uh, the graph, is somewhat uh, misleading. Why is it misleading? Because it goes over the whole period of the 22 years. And there was, in the first years, there was really an overrepresentation of the case. Well, overrepresentation, now that was a negative term. Huh? But there were many, many cases that were brought by developed countries. If you look at 
and that's the next graph, if you look at uh, basically cases brought as since 2000, in many years, developing countries brought more cases uh, to the WTO dispute settlement system than developed countries did. Yeah? Um, and I, I think um, this is clearly illustrated um, by um, uh, the graph that I, uh, I think you will see now. Um, just one more thing about uh, the complainants. Um, there was, as I said before, 5% uh, of the cases was brought by low-income countries. Uh, that was primarily, in those 22 years, that was primarily India, which during a long period in those 22 years was still a low-income country. It has now graduated to the category of lower-middle income. But, uh, so a lot of these low-income country cases um, uh, that was India. There has only been one case ever brought by um, a least developed country, uh, Bangladesh. Bangladesh brought once a case against uh, India on anti-dumping duties on batteries. Yeah? Um, um, so the use of the system by least developed countries has been very limited. Um, going through the list of the top 10 users, you will see, huh, as expected, the US on top with 115 cases, then the EU with 100 cases, Canada um, is third, Brazil is fourth, huh? so not first developing country, most use, biggest user of the system is Brazil, 31 cases, Mexico fifth, India on the sixth place, uh, and so on. Yeah? Uh, in the top uh, ten, you find uh, five countries that everybody would agree to are uh, developing countries. Respondents. Yeah. Uh, whom were the cases brought against? Uh, and you sometimes have the impression that, that in certain circles, um, they describe the WTO dispute settlement system as a system um, that is used by developed countries against developing countries no? to enforce the obligations. And, and if you look at the graph, that I think you'll now see, um, this is not the case. Yeah? Um, because um, actually most cases have been brought against the United States. No? Remember, it's the, it's the member that brings most cases, but it's also the member against whom most cases were brought. 24% uh, of all the cases are cases against the United States. If anybody uh, wonders why the WTO dispute settlement system may not be that popular in Washington, then that's probably one of the reasons, you know, uh, because many cases are brought against the United States too. The European Union here is a distant second with 19%. With, uh, well, not that distant, but, but uh, not very close either, 90%. Then you've got uh, other high-income countries, 14%, all the developing countries together uh, as the uh, respondent uh, make up uh, for 43%. Um, it's actually, it's, you have WTO dispute settlement in all sorts of relations. Um, you have it, a developed country against developed countries. And yes, there are quite a number of cases. Huh? Example, uh, the Boeing and Airbus cases, the United States against the European Union, the European Union against the United States. Um, a number of these cases. You've got cases of um, a developed country against a developing country. 
Yeah, they also have. Um, most recently, um, the uh, India solar cells case. Uh, uh, developed countries brought that case against uh, India. You've got cases uh, of developing countries against developing countries, and you've got quite a number of those um, where developing countries um, use the system to settle their trade disputes. Um, you actually see that, that uh, also, for example, in Latin America, that, that Latin American countries use the system uh, a lot to, to settle disputes among themselves. But my favorite um, sort of uh, uh, combination um, is uh, a developing country against the developed country. Yeah? And, and, and within that category, um, my real favorites are the, the David versus Goliath cases. Uh, examples, Costa Rica versus the United States uh, in the uh, U.S. underwear uh, uh, case. Uh, now, I don't invent the names of these cases, um, uh, but this case is U.S. underwear. Um, small Costa Rica, uh, beautiful Costa Rica, but small Costa Rica, uh, brought the case against the United States in the, in the early years of the system, and it won hands down. Yeah? Um, things that they could not achieve diplomatically um, were one um, in the uh, in the United States withdrew uh, the measure even before the appellate body was ready with its final um, uh, pronouncement on uh, that dispute. Even more, uh, David uh, uh, is a case um, uh, called um, uh, U.S. gambling. Uh, that was a case brought by Antigua and Barbuda. Um, at the time, 90,090 inhabitants, and they bring a case against the United States. Yeah. Um, it's rare in international relations um, that uh, might is not always right, yeah. and, and, and that, that is quite uh, clear here. Um, okay, I enough said about huh, who the complainants were and who the respondents were, let's go. Um, to, um, well, I've got here also uh, an overview of um, who were the top um, uh, respondents. Uh, again, United States, European Union. China uh, comes at the third place. Uh, a, a large number of cases uh, was, has been brought uh, against uh, China. Um, uh, and uh, the number is impressive because China only joined the WTO um, six years later than the WTO dispute settlement uh, system started. India on the fifth place, Argentina, Canada, and so on. Yeah. Again, five developing countries, five developed countries as the uh, most frequent uh, respondents. What have been the agreements um, at issue, um, the WTO agreements at issues in all these disputes? Um, let me not be too technical here, because after all, this is a lecture on, on, on dispute settlement and not on WTO law SEC. Um, but it's perhaps useful for you to know that in most disputes, um, there was um, uh, the claim was made that there was a violation of uh, a GATT article. So the basic agreement on, on, on trading goods. Um, and that's uh, the biggest category, as you can see on the graph. Um, other uh, popular agreements uh, to bring cases under have been the trade remedy cases, uh, the trade remedy agreements, uh, the subsidies agreement, uh, which is uh, identified there as uh, SCM, huh? 
Subsidies and Countervailing Measures Agreement and the Anti-Dumping Agreement, uh, ADA. Um, uh, what is surprising is that there have been, or some would say it's surprising, that there have been relatively few cases under the GATS, uh, the General Agreement on Trade in Services, and under the TRIPS Agreement. Well, why is it surprising? Because often we think of WTO law as having three pillars, uh, the goods pillar, the services pillar, and the intellectual property pillar. Now, there has been a lot of disputes under the goods pillar, and much, much less under the um, other two pillars, the GATS uh, and the TRIPS agreement. Now, there are reasons for this, um, but uh, that would uh, lead me too far. Now, um, before I go to what I think is the most important thing, um, in terms of a dispute settlement system, and that most important thing is, as I already indicated, is compliance. Huh? Is there compliance with the rulings? Before I, I, I talk about that, um, I want to say one thing about how often um, a complainant wins a case uh, in the WTO. And it's useful to indicate that because um, it's quite amazing that the success rate of complainants is so high. Uh, as you can see on the graph, um, the success rate um, uh, for complainants is almost 90%. So in, in, in almost 90% of the cases that are brought to Geneva for resolution, um, the, the complainant wins on at least one claim of inconsistency. Uh, um, these days, most um, complainants um, uh, have a machine gun approach uh, to litigation. Uh, they, 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 they fire one claim of inconsistency after another, after another, after another. Uh. They don't use the golden bullet approach, but huh, machine gun approach. Um, in most cases, well, not most cases, in almost 90% of the cases, at least one of these claims of inconsistency will stuck. Yeah. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, that's impressive. Now, um, does that indicate a certain bias of the system for the complainant? Um, I don't think so. I think it's more a reflection on, of the fact that um, before actually bringing a case and bringing it to the panel stage, um, countries have, WTO members have thought very, have thought it through very, very carefully. That they don't bring frivolous cases. Uh, um, the frivolous cases, if there are any, uh, they're weeded out in the consultation stage um, or they're not brought at all. Um, so it's more a question of uh, the, the self-selection that takes place in the, the kind of cases that is uh, brought. Um, yes, uh, let me now come to what I think is, 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 I'm repeating it for the third time, I think now, one of the most important things. Um, of any dispute settlement system is compliance. Yeah. Um, uh, does the country that is found to have acted inconsistent with its international obligations, and in this case on WTO obligations, does that country then subsequently change its law, withdraw the measure, puts itself into consistency? Um, in the case of um, the uh, the WTO dispute settlement system, 
there is a compliance rate of 85%. Now, different scholars will give you different figures, um, but it's between 80 and 90. Huh? So I put myself in the middle. Um, that is very, very impressive in terms of compliance uh, with um, WTO rules and recommendations. It's very impressive. Um, very few national um, dispute resolution systems, court systems, have as high a compliance rate as this, yeah? uh, let alone other state-to-state -state, uh, dispute settlement uh, systems. And I will not in this context refer to the International Court of Justice. Um, I hope I've, got, I've done one thing so far. Uh, and that is to convince you that the WTO dispute settlement system is relevant uh, uh, and is as relevant, um, is as important, um, is as successful um, as, as, as I, I, I think um, uh, it is and I claim it is. Um, uh, so you've got uh, much use of the system. Uh, you've got uh, 538 cases brought uh, thus far. You've got much production. Um, you've got the appellate body producing 133 um, reports. Judgment, is that a lot? Well, we've gone through that discussion. Um, you have broad use, uh, both developed and developing countries um, use the system and in all sorts of combinations. Um, it is used um, over a, a wide variety of different agreements and um, there's a high compliance uh, record. I rest my case. Yeah. Um, what I would like to do in the second part of the lecture <laughs> is to try to answer um, where does the success come from? Yeah. Why uh, is the WTO dispute settlement system um, successful in the ways I've described it? Um, and I think I also keeping in mind uh, the time limits, um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll focus on um, the following aspects. First of all, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the origins of the system. Uh, where does the system come from? Because it's important to understand that. Um, what, why we have the current system and, and not another system. Uh, so, origins. Secondly, I'll talk a bit about jurisdiction. Uh, thirdly, about access to the system, who has access to the system. Fourthly, I'll talk about key features, and, and key features will, will group a number of things that I can't put elsewhere. Huh? Last, but one, I'll talk about institutions, and then finally, I'll conclude this section uh, before looking into the future. Uh, I'll talk about process. Origins. Um, I already said that uh, the current uh, system uh, uh, is, is, is uh, functional, is operational since the 1st of January 1995. Uh, it came about uh, at the same time as the WTO, as an organization, uh, uh, came about, became operational. Um, but did that dispute settlement system that, we've now that we're now describing, did it fall out of the sky? Did it come out of the blue? No. Uh, it was actually built upon uh, a dispute settlement system that had existed under the GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, uh, the predecessor of the WTO. 
Um, and then this speed settlement system of the GAT was itself um, a very, very interesting system. It started in 1947, 40, 48, uh, when, when, when the GAT uh, became provisionally applicable. It started out there as a power-based diplomatic dispute settlement system. Power-based diplomatic dispute settlement. Um, and and, and the, you don't even find a title in the, the GAT that says dispute settlement. There's an Article 22 and an Article 23, but they do not refer to dispute settlement. It's really um, very, very rudimentary in terms of a, a dispute settlement system, but they built upon that and gradually over um, the, the, the years between 1948 and uh, the establishment of the WTO, that system transformed itself into um, a rules-based, quasi-judicial dispute settlement system. And it would take me much too long uh, to explain what the various steps were, but uh, take it from me uh, that this evolution took place. But there was one, well perhaps a, a number, but there was one very, very important um, problem with that uh, GATT dispute settlement system. And that problem was that um, the reports that were produced by panels, um, panels of experts, that these reports only became legally binding when they were adopted by consensus by uh, the uh, GATT contracting parties. And you've heard it well. Huh? So the reports had to be adopted by consensus, meaning that also the loser in a case had to agree to the report in order for it to become legally binding. Now, believe it or not, but for many years, um, that system worked. And it partly worked because these reports, and I would invite you to read some of these old reports. I mean, they're fun to read. Uh, they don't read like judgments. Huh? They look, they read like diplomatic um, compromises. Huh? And, and therefore, it was possible for um, the losers um, uh, to sort of agree to it, and then that became legally binding. Now, with the evolution that I described, huh, from a power-based system to huh, a, a rules-based system, and with that evolution, the reports, the panel reports, became more and more legally focused and, 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 and became harsher in their language. And that made it very difficult for the loser to actually agree to these uh, reports. And what we've seen, and that led to the breakdown of that GATT dispute settlement system in the 1980s, um, the reports, many reports, didn't get adopted anymore. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> uh, there was, they didn't become legally binding. Um, which the United States then um, said was a justification, and I suppose under general international law they have some good cause for saying that, uh, saw it as a justification to since there was no functional multilateral dispute settlement system, they said, well, you don't give us any other choice but to go unilateral yeah? and to decide unilaterally who violates the rules of the GATT. And if they found a country to have violated the rules of the GATT, they imposed unilaterally, again, uh, sanctions on that. It is 
that American unilateralism, um, that, um, that, that, that really blossomed uh, uh, in the late 80s, uh, because there was no functional multilateral dispute settlement system, it is that U.S. unilateralism um, that um, brought uh, the GATT contracting parties around the negotiating table uh, in order to uh, negotiate um, uh, a new dispute settlement system. Uh, and that new dispute settlement system uh, was part of uh, uh, the um, agreements that concluded the Uruguay round. Um, that new system uh, is, was set out in the DSU, the Dispute Settlement Understanding, uh, the Agreement on the Resolution of Disputes. Um, that system has been uh, described by uh, my predecessor uh, as European appellate body member or appellate body member from uh, the European Union, um, uh, Professor Klaus-Dieter Heilermann, um, as something close to a miracle. And, and I think he's right. Um, uh, the fact that we had this dispute settlement system that I will briefly describe later huh, in its various features, um, it's, it's, it's unique uh, in terms of international dispute settlements. It has features that you don't find anywhere else, um, at least not that combination of features uh, you don't find anywhere else. Um, what explains the miracle? I think um, at that particular time uh, in history, uh, the wish to step away from unilateralism and to find a functional dispute settlement system, multilateral dispute settlement system. And one of the things um, that an important, uh, two important um, innovations, there are many innovations, but two very important ones. One was to fix the main problem in the old GATT dispute settlement system. Huh? You remember that I said the main problem there was that the reports, panel reports, had to be adopted by consensus. Huh? So anybody could block huh, the adoption of the reports, meant anybody could, drop, could uh, block these reports to become legally binding. That problem was resolved by um, a new rule, namely that um, panel reports would be adopted or ought to be adopted by what we call um, reverse consensus or negative consensus. And, and it's a bit of a, requires a bit of brain gymnastics to understand the concept of negative consensus, but it comes down to um, the report is adopted unless there's a consensus not to adopt it. Well, I can tell you that the winner in a case is never going to join a consensus not to adopt the report. Um, and has there ever been such a consensus in the last 22 years? No, huh? obviously, perhaps not obvious. Theoretically, it's of course possible, but it has not happened so far. Um, that's one important innovation. The other important innovation is, um, well, after they had decided that um, panel reports would be then adopted by this um, a negative consensus, huh? this reverse consensus, so quasi-automatic, I think the negotiators had what I like to de describe, they had a, an oops moment. Huh? Oops, what did we do? Huh? Because uh, 
such a panel report can be a very bad report. I mean, occasionally there are very bad panel reports, and we would no longer have any control over that because they would be uh, quasi-automatically adopted and become legally binding. And this is when they realized that they probably needed an appeal stage. And that's when the appellate body came into play. And as I've written um, uh, in publications before I became an appellate body member, uh, it, it really was, and one, one looks at the negotiating history, it was an afterthought. Yeah? Uh, there was not this idea of constructing a, a, a clear hierarchy with the appellate body on top and then panels under. It was more like panels here, and then in exceptional cases, uh, you have to have the possibility to appeal bad panel reports. Now, as from the very beginning, it turned out differently because for the first two years, two years and a half, huh, up to the Japan film case, all panel reports were appealed. Yeah. Uh, everything was appealed. Uh, and, and okay, so this is to explain a bit of the origins. Huh? So the GATT dispute settlement system and the new system, quite a miracle actually, um, uh, fixed um, the uh, defaults of uh, that original system and really introduced uh, a multilateral rules-based dispute settlement uh, system instead of unilateralism, yeah? unilateral uh, resolution of uh, disputes. Um, let me go now quickly through um, a, a number of other um, features. Uh, and first of all, jurisdiction. Um, the nature of that jurisdiction? Well, I, I, I like to describe it as uh, a CEC, C-E-C, compulsory, exclusive, contentious. The jurisdiction is compulsory. If a case is brought against you, you can't run away. You cannot deny uh, the jurisdiction. Um, you have to, the fact that you're a, w, a WTO member makes that you have to submit yourself uh, to the jurisdiction of the WTO dispute settlement system. Again, if a case is brought against you, you have no choice but to accept the jurisdiction. That's very, very different. Huh? Uh, in uh, uh, other state-to-state, uh, -state, uh, most other state-to-state -state, uh, dispute settlement systems. So compulsory jurisdiction. Exclusive jurisdiction. Exclusive jurisdiction goes to the fact that um, disputes relating to WTO rights and obligations can only be brought to the WTO dispute settlement system. Yeah? So you can't bring um, a dispute, at least not under WTO law, huh? you can't bring a dispute on um, Article 3, 4 of the GATT, huh? uh, national treatment, um, uh, you can't bring that to the International Court of Justice. Huh? Uh, you have to bring the, the exclusive jurisdiction of the WTO dispute settlement system. And then uh, last, uh, the jurisdiction is contentious. The, the, the WTO dispute settlement system has only contentious jurisdiction, as opposed to what? Well, it doesn't have uh, advisory opinion uh, jurisdiction. Um, as to the scope of jurisdiction, um, well, I think I've already mentioned that um, uh, all disputes um, uh, that um, relate to um, uh, all but very, very few WTO agreements, um, all these disputes uh, would fall within the scope of the jurisdiction of the WTO dispute settlement system. So that goes from uh, customs duties uh, to um, 
intellectual property rights that goes from uh, quantitative restrictions to um, sanitary and phytosanitary measures. Uh, um, there's an awful lot of different um, uh, disputes that can be brought um, to uh, WTO dispute settlement. And this is also something that, that makes it a, a fascinating field to be active in because you get uh, all sorts of uh, different cases uh, uh, thrown at you. Um, with regard to the measures that are subject to WTO dispute settlement, it's perhaps interesting to see that, that um, it's not only um, measures that are actually applied that you can challenge, but you can also challenge a measure or legislation without it being applied. You know? um, so uh, then you talk about an as such claim. Uh, so you're not focusing on the fact that that legislation was applied in a particular circumstance, but you're just focusing on the WTO consistency of the legislation as such, without having to look at the way in which it has been applied. Uh, and so that's one uh, um, measures can obviously be legislation, but they can also be um, just acts, but, but also practices. You, you can challenge practices. You can challenge unwritten um, measures. Um, you can challenge measures that no longer exist. As long as they were in existence at the time that um, the um, panel is established, uh, that's enough. That allows you to bring it to... The Let me go on. Huh? That's about all I want to say about jurisdiction. Access. Who has access to the system? Uh, who can bring uh, WTO cases? Um, members and members only. Um, so um, individuals, uh, companies, uh, other international organizations cannot bring uh, cases uh, to uh, the WTO. Uh, they do not have a, re a right of recourse. Um, there's one very peculiar thing, which is in a way is, is somewhat theoretical, but still it's interesting to mention. In order to bring a case to the WTO, you do not necessarily need to claim that there has been a violation of WTO law. What matters is whether there has been a nullification or impairment of a benefit that you get under one of the agreements. Now, in most cases, 95%, 98% of the cases, that nullification or impairment is the result of a measure that is WTO inconsistent. And then you talk about uh, violation complaints. But it is possible to bring a case um, where you say, no, I'm not arguing that this measure is in itself a violation of WTO law, but the measure does nullify or impair one of the benefits that I have under the agreements. And these are called non-violation complaints. Yeah. Um, as I already indicated, this, these non-violation complaints are limited. There are few of them. And under the uh, WTO, in the WTO years, as opposed to the GATT years, in the WTO years, none of these non-violation complaints has been successful. 
but it is a, it's a rare feature of the system. Huh? So normally, in most court systems, you have to argue there's a violation of the law. In the WTO, at least theoretically, you don't have to argue that. Um, you can also uh, bring a case uh, when you merely argue that there's nullification or impairment of benefits. I said that the system was only accessible uh, for WTO members. And I'm not going to withdraw that statement. But, but there is something that I like to, to call indirect access uh, to WTO dispute settlement. Um, and the best way of expressing that would be to say, um, behind every case, there is an industry association. There is a big company. There is an NGO. Uh, countries do not bring cases just because they like to bring cases. Countries bring cases because uh, their industry, their big company, uh, their NGO has lobbied the government to bring that case. And this is what I call indirect access. And in, in, in some countries, uh, that sort of indirect access is highly regulated and, and organized. In the European Union, that's the case. And that's the trade barriers regulation. Uh, in the United States, that's the case. Uh, uh, that's Section 301 um, uh, of the Trade Act. Um, uh, in other countries, um, it's, 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 more than, it's less regulated. Um, but you will find that behind most cases, uh, the vast majority of the cases, there is a, a, a company, an industry, um, or other interest uh, behind. So, indirect access. Key features. Um, first key, features, uh, key feature worth mentioning um, would be a prompt settlement of disputes. Um, and that is not surprising, huh? that that is a, a key feature of the system. They want to settle disputes promptly. You find that expressed in Article 3.3. Uh, by the way, um, if you don't... <laughs> I sometimes call upon students to read uh, the Dispute Settlement Understanding. Uh, not a very long agreement, but still, uh, it's, it's an effort. And I know that you may not want to do that, to read that from Article 1 up to Article, what is it, 27, 28. Uh, um, so you don't, but if you read anything, read Article 3. Because Article 3 really will give you most of the key features of the system. And uh, the prompt settlement of disputes um, is like the first one. That's Article uh, 3, Paragraph uh, 3. Second uh, key feature um, is uh, set out in Article 3, Paragraph 2, first sentence. And that goes as follows. The, the dispute settlement system is a central element uh, in providing security and predictability to the multilateral trading system. And that says a lot. Why do we have dispute settlement? To provide security and predictability to trade, to the trading system, to the multilateral trading system. Article 3, paragraph 2, first sentence. Article 3, paragraph 7, and we already briefly touched upon that. There's a preference for mutually agreed solutions. There's a preference not to go to court, not to go to panels, not to go to the appellate body, but to negotiate resolutions huh? amicably, huh? to reach an amicable solution. Article 3, paragraph 7. And that is huh, successful. I mean, remember the 20% huh, success rate? Um, 
And now, of course, uh, in other dispute settlement systems, before you bring a case to the court, you have tried to settle through negotiations. But the difference uh, with the WTO dispute settlement system is that it is part of the system. You can't bring a case uh, to, the, to a panel before you have, for at least 60 days, negotiated, tried to negotiate an amicable solution. Different methods of dispute settlement. Uh, the DSU, the Dispute Settlement Understanding, um, provides for all of them. Yeah? Um, it provides for consultations, negotiations in Article 4. That's the very first step always. It provides for adjudication, uh, what happens before the panel, what happens before the appellate body, that's adjudication. But it also provides for arbitration under Article 25 and a number of other provisions, it provides for good officers, it provides for mediation, it provides for conciliation. Now, uh, the latter four, arbitration, good officers, mediation and conciliation, uh, have not been uh, used uh, very often and that's uh, an understatement. Uh, they have been used very little. Uh, most of it has been, obviously, always as a first step, consultations, negotiations and then adjudication by panels and uh, the appellate body. But I think it's worth mentioning this because if people, when people think about a WTO dispute settlement, they only think about panels and the appellate body. No, the DSU itself also provides for other methods of international dispute settlement. Back to um, Article 3.2, but now um, the second sentence. What does that say? And the dispute settlement system is there for the preservation of the rights and obligations of uh, its members. Now, I think most dispute settlement systems would say that. Yeah? It's there for the preservation of rights and obligations. Um, so that's not that surprising. But then, then it goes on, the same sentence, and it says, the dispute settlement system is there for, panels and the appellate body are there for clarifying existing provisions of the covered agreements, of the WGO agreements. Now, that's interesting. Clarification, huh? the mandate to clarify. Why is that interesting? Because as many other uh, international agreements, the WGO agreements are, um, are beauties of constructive ambiguity. And am I holding this against the negotiators? No, not at all, um, because if the negotiators would have wanted to be, have clarity on everything, they would still be negotiating uh, the WTO agreements. But they are beauties of constructive ambiguity, so there's a lot of need for clarification. Um, so does that um, uh, create a danger of judicial activism? Well, the drafters of the DSU were very aware of the fact that if you allow um, a judicial or adjudicative body uh, to clarify, and that there is this danger of judicial activism. Um, and that's why uh, they said twice, not just once. It's a short uh, agreement, the dispute settlement understanding. They say twice that panels and the appellate body, the dispute settlement system as a whole, may not add to 
or diminish the rights and obligations of members. They don't use the terms of judicial activism, they don't. But this is a clear statement against judicial activism. You shall not, panels and the appellate body, you shall not add to or diminish the rights and obligations that members have under the agreements. They say it twice, once in Article 3.2, last sentence, and once in Article 19, uh, second paragraph. Um, now, Article uh, 3.2 is also helpful because they indicate how the appellate body, panels before that, how they are to avoid adding to the rights and obligations uh, of members or diminish these rights and obligations, how they are to avoid judicial activism. What does uh, Article 3.2 say? It says that this clarification has to be done uh, according to customary rules of interpretation of public international law. And that has been uh, uh, seen as a reference to uh, Articles 31 and 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And again, that is a lecture in its own right. Huh? Um, uh, so I'm not going to go into this. Uh, but the appellate body has done that um, very, very carefully. Uh, some commentators would say uh, actually been overly textual. Huh? Uh, text which is obviously put in context and uh, then read uh, in the light of the object and purpose of the agreement. Um, the appellate body has been very, very careful to stick to that mandate. Um, that does not prevent um, some members uh, to um, consider the appellate body as guilty of judicial activism. Um, let me only say that um, judicial activism is often in the eye of the beholder. Yeah? Uh, I have never heard uh, the winner in a case uh, to accuse the appellate body of judicial activism. Uh, the winner of a case uh, always, uh, winner of a dispute, uh, always says, oh no, that's what the law already said, that's what we argued. Yeah? Um, uh, losers um, often uh, have a different story. Um, uh, so judicial activism is um, in the eye of the beholder. Um, last comment on uh, basic features uh, goes to do the remedies for breach the remedies for breach of WTO law. Um, there's actually only one final remedy. It is often misunderstood, but the text of the DSU is quite clear on this. There's only one final remedy, and that is the withdrawal or modification of the uh, measure, the legislation, the act that was found to be WTO inconsistent. And you have to do that promptly or within a reasonable period of time. Bring me, get me too far to, to explain what the reasonable period of time is, um, but, but that, uh, yeah, huh? a reasonable period of time is, is being determined, either parties agree on it, or there's an arbitrator that will fix that reasonable period of time. So, only final remedy is to get your legislation uh, to make WTO consistent. Uh, there are two intermediate uh, remedies, compensation 
and retaliation. Compensation can be offered uh, by the uh, respondent and, and has to be accepted by the complainant um, when uh, withdrawal uh, um, of the illegal measure is not immediately possible. Uh, then the respondent can offer compensation. Compensation, for example, in the form of lowering customs duties on another product that is of export interest, sorry, uh, that is of export interest uh, to the complainant. That may be compensation. Has happened in very few cases, uh, very, very few cases, uh, that compensation was offered and accepted. Uh, um, the other temporary um, remedy is retaliation, is the imposition of um, trade sanctions. Um, uh, and that is, um, uh, that has happened in a few more cases um, where the, uh, for example, in the Holmans case, um, the case brought by Canada and the United States against the European Union, um, the European Union um, failed to comply um, with um, the, um, the, 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 the rulings and recommendations of the appellate body in that case. Um, and um, as a reaction, um, the, uh, uh, the United States and Canada imposed trade sanctions on, um, the, um, uh, on the European Union. Uh, you have to be authorized by the dispute settlement body to impose these trade sanctions, but again that authorization is given by reverse consensus, so it's quasi-automatic. Let me emphasize again that both this compensation and this retaliation are just temporary remedies. You're waiting for the withdrawal of the illegal measure, uh, so it's a temporary uh, remedy. The only other comment I want to make on remedies um, is that there's one very important thing missing in this remedy set, um, and that is there is no compensation for injury resulting from the breach of um, WTO law. Now you might say, you just mentioned compensation. No, no. Compensation I mentioned is for the to compensate the damage that will arise in the future huh? after the judgment, after the ruling that says the measure is WTO inconsistent, damage that is caused then in the future, that can be compensated for as long as necessary um, huh? until the time that the measure is then changed, the legislation is changed. What you don't have is compensation for the damage that was caused in the past by the illegal measure. Uh, and that is sort of strange because under customary international law, uh, you have to compensate damage that is caused by an illegal act. But the WTO dispute settlement system has contracted out of uh, this um, rule of customary international law through the DSU, which provides for its own set of remedies and that remedies all these remedies are prospective. Yeah. Nothing is done about the damage that is caused in the past. And that's um, sometimes said as one of the major shortcomings of the dispute settlement system is that you don't have compensation for damages caused in the past. Um, I'm getting, making progress. Um, Let's now briefly talk about um, who does what, 
Huh? Um, in WQ dispute settlement, so in other words, uh, the institutions. And I think I've already mentioned uh, some of them. Um, but I, uh, you basically have um, two kinds of institutions. And that in itself is a bit strange too. Um, you have political institutions, and one in particular, the dispute settlement body. And uh, the dispute settlement body is composed of all WTO members. Um, and, and, and they actually take key decisions. There's a key decision on um, the establishment of panels, because as we say, uh, say in a minute, uh, panels are ad hoc, uh, so they have to be established in a particular dispute. That is a decision that is taken by the dispute settlement body, the political body. They take the decision on the adoption of uh, the report, uh, making it legally binding, and they take the last decision that they take is the decision on retaliation. But they take these decisions, as I already explained before, by reverse consensus. Yeah? And, and don't torture your brain on this. Um, reverse consensus means de facto um, quasi-automatic, if not automatic. Yeah? Um, so, yes, they take these, these crucial decisions, but they, they take them by um, reverse consensus, so it's quasi-automatic. Um, is that then still useful? Yes, I think it's very useful uh, to have uh, the uh, dispute settlement body, the political body, take all these decisions, because it keeps the organization very much aware on what disputes are ongoing. Yeah? Um, this is very different. I mean, I, at, uh, at one point I also worked with the European Court of Justice, and there you really had the impression that there was the world in Luxembourg, huh, where the European Court of Justice is, and then there's the world of Brussels, huh, where the political institutions are, and they were far apart. Huh? Uh, at the WTO, uh, since the political body, the dispute settlement body, is involved in every stage of any uh, all the disputes, huh, the beginning, then the adoption of the reports, huh? and then finally both panel reports and appellate body report need to be adopted, and then finally, if it comes to that, uh, the authorization of retaliation, it's, it, it follows up the whole process, which I think is very useful. Okay, that's the dispute settlement body. Um, that's the involvement of the political uh, side of the organization. And then you have the adjudicative part of the organization with, at first, instance you have panels, um, the ad hoc tribunals, um, so they're established uh, for every dispute um, and they're composed of uh, three uh, trade experts, um, quite often um, trade diplomats um, uh, based in Geneva or, or trade specialists from capital, um, a fair number of um, uh, law professors um, or practitioners, uh, but the majority still are um, either uh, current or former um, trade diplomats um, uh, of countries that have no link with the dispute, yeah, that are neither a party or a third party in a particular dispute. Um, and then finally, you have the appellate body. The appellate body um, that sits in appeal huh, on uh, panel reports, on panel uh, rulings. The appellate body, unlike panels, um, is, is, is a permanent body. Huh? Um, it's a per 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 
permanent um, appeals tribunal uh, of seven judges. Um, not at this very moment, uh, because um, uh, appellate body members uh, need to be appointed um, by consensus, and that is a normal consensus, so that gives every uh, country a veto power. And um, the process of appointing uh, new appellate body members is currently stuck, um, um, and um, the number of appellate body members is uh, down to um, four. There are only four appellate body members at the moment uh, in function as members of the appellate body. Uh, so the picture that you may now uh, see, uh, which still has uh, six appellate body members, there was already one that had um, uh, retired at that moment, um, that picture is no longer correct. Um, uh, the gentleman uh, in the middle, uh, that's me, um, I retired from the appellate body in December last year, and then the gentleman uh, uh, in the corner, uh, Ricardo Ramirez from Mexico, um, he retired already last summer. At this moment, uh, there are only four members uh, uh, on the appellate uh, body. Um, the appellate body um, reviews um, uh, only uh, issues of law. Uh, we don't go, uh, we don't review um, the uh, issues of fact. Um, but again, uh, let me not dwell on this. Um, I could talk uh, for a very long time on this, um, I think. If you think about the appellate body, I think it's fair to say and, and, and uh, that um, it has all the features uh, of a court. Um, uh, and the fact that it's called the appellate body um, is itself um, uh, testimony of its uh, very modest uh, origins. Um, and uh, somewhat misleading. Okay, um, last um, point before I come to a conclusion, something very quickly about the process. And again, I think I've said most, uh, the steps in the process of um, WTO dispute settlement, you always start with consultations, negotiations between the parties in order to reach uh, a mutually agreed solution, if at all possible. Um, once you've done that for at least 60 days, but often parties take longer. Uh, if you've done it for at least 60 days, you then the complainant can then say, well, we will not be able to find uh, a solution to the dispute. We go uh, to adjudication. Then they ask for the establishment of a panel and the panel process starts. The panel process um, will start and, and, and eventually that comes out in a panel report. And that panel report can then be appealed to the appellate body. And that's the third stage. And then finally, as a last stage, um, after the appellate body, when there is an appeal, uh, after the appellate body has come to its uh, conclusion in the case, uh, the fourth stage starts, and that is implementation and enforcement. Uh, and one of the interesting things with regard to the latter stage is that again the political body uh, comes into play, not only to authorize retaliation in the end, but also um, to, um, to monitor the compliance. Uh, um, you will find, if you look at the agenda of DSB meetings, every agenda will have, well, uh, there was this ruling in this case, what has uh, the respondent done? 
in order to put itself into compliance. So there's really a following up, um, which is, I think, uh, very, very useful. Um, so four steps, hmm? consultation, panel process, appellate review, and then implementation enforcement. Three brief comments, general observations on the process. First, time frame. The time frames for WTO dispute settlement are short, very short, but always too long. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that I said that there was no compensation for damages suffered in the past. So every day, every month, every that, that uh, the dispute settlement process lasts is a day of damage to a national industry, to a company that will never be compensated. Um, so the, the time frames are very short. Um, a panel should do its work, depending on what you take as a starting point and an end point, uh, should do its work in, um, in, in six months to nine months. That's extremely short. The appellate body uh, on paper um, shall not, uh, the process shall not exceed 90 days. Now that's no, not, no longer realistic, but what the appellate body does take from that is the absolute requirement uh, to do it in as short a time possible. Um, if you compare the statistics, um, WTO dispute settlement system goes very, very fast. Uh, take an average case uh, before the International Court of Justice, and I think the last statistics say that it's between three and four years. Yeah. WTO dispute settlement is much uh, shorter. That's the first thing, time frame. Uh, second, confidentiality and transparency. Uh, we've seen a real evolution there. Um, there used to be um, a lot of uh, confidentiality, a lack of transparency. You would know when a case starts um, and then it would go underground during the consultations negotiations. Well, that's normal. And then you would know when a panel is established, huh? uh, requested and established, that was public. But then the whole panel process would be behind closed doors. Then there would be a panel report that would be public. That would be appealed, also that is public. But then the appellate body process, again, was behind closed doors. So there was a lot of uh, confidentiality and a lack of transparency. And I, th I think um, there's much more openness uh, now, uh, and I, I won't go into detail here, but, but uh, certainly when the parties agree, and uh, most developed countries, if not all developed countries, agree to that, if they have a dispute among themselves, they will agree to public observation. They will agree to um, uh, the uh, public um, uh, witnessing um, the um, uh, proceedings. Uh, it's not as exciting as it sounds. Uh, um, I remember the first time that um, uh, the appellate body um, allowed for public observation and there was a lot of interest on the first morning uh, and by noontime um, there were already fewer people. The second day morning even fewer people, and then at the end of the hearing on the second day, uh, the only people that were uh, still watching, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh, the only people watching were students uh, that had been forced by their professor uh, to um, uh, attend the hearing. 
Um, but it's important to do it because it, it, it contradicts um, the stories that are otherwise out there that all sorts of uh, unholy things happen behind the closed doors. Yeah? Uh, the, these hearings are uh, at the panel level, but definitely also at the appellate body, are extremely technical. Um, so unless you know the case inside out, um, uh, you probably are not going to have uh, much fun. Uh, if you do know the case inside out, it's great fun. Um, so that's the, s and the last point, of course, um, is, is uh, due process and good faith. Um, I mean, uh, due process is extremely important um, in the whole process uh, of WTO dispute settlement and, and is being emphasized again and again. And the system has to be used in good faith. Yeah? Um, so uh, panels and the appellate body have uh, acted against um, uh, using procedural um, procedural techniques uh, to frustrate um, the um, so things that may be done in national court um, proceedings uh, are not um, welcomed. Um, in WTO dispute settlement. This brings me to my conclusion. And the conclusion um, relates to the dangers facing uh, WTO dispute settlement. And um, I'm going to, to talk about four things. Um, four dangers or perceived dangers. And the first danger is that the system gets overloaded, um, that too many cases um, come to WTO dispute settlement. And you may be slightly surprised that I mentioned this because if you remember um, the uh, graph that I showed you in the beginning, um, and the number last year was uh, 17, the year before that was also 17 cases. You'd say, well, if you compare that, that's, that goes up and down 17, is that really that much? Um, but that is a misrepresentation actually of the reality because uh, yes, the number is 17, but uh, what we've seen over the last years is that the number of claims in these cases, the number of, 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 of complainants, the number of third parties, um, the nature of the, 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 the measures, uh, that all ha has, has, has exploded. Huh? And obviously, our case law is now massive. Huh? So um, there's, uh, there's a lot that needs to be said about each of the claims. I remember the, 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 uh, the old days, um, the, very, the very beginning of the system, I worked for the Bella Body Secretariat. And then I went to do academia for 10 years to come back as a judge. But, but in the very early years, um, we had cases that at the time we thought were complex and big, and, and, but they were relatively simple because there was very little case law. Yeah? Um, now you have tens of thousands of pages of case law that always needs to be taken into account. So first danger is to overload the system, uh, especially given the limited, um, uh, the limited means of the system. Um, uh, Second danger um, is uh, any attack on uh, the impartiality and independence of um, the arbitrators, the judges, um, the panelists. Um, 
a dispute settlement system of this kind, and I think any dispute settlement system, cannot survive if the stakeholders don't have absolute confidence in the impartiality and independence of the judges. And um, uh, there have been some incidents um, in recent years um, that uh, make one worry about whether uh, all WTO members uh, share um, this need to, to, to ensure the impartiality and independence of judges. Um, third point, that's an even more general point, and in a way it's related to uh, the first point, the overload, the danger of overload, is the institutional imbalance that we see in the WTO. Institutional imbalance between, on the one hand, the rulemaking, uh, the, the legislative um, branch of the organization, uh, where new uh, rules of international trade are negotiated and agreed upon, and the adjudicative branch, uh, the, the, the judicial branch of the organization. Now, um, the WTO, while there have been successes on the often not enough um, focused on, but while there have been some successes on the rulemaking side, on the whole, that um, part of the organization has not uh, lived up to its expectation, has not functioned well. On the other hand, WTO dispute settlement has been very successful. That's what I tried to describe in the first part of the lecture. Um, this imbalance is dangerous. Because it also makes um, WTO members that know that they will not get a negotiated new rule try to use the dispute settlement system to create new rules. Uh, uh, and that's, of course, what a dispute settlement system is not about. It's not about new making, because then you get into judicial activism, uh, which is uh, my last danger. Um, uh, obviously, as a Former appellate body member, you will not hear me say that uh, the appellate body has been guilty of judicial activism. I honestly believe that that is not the case. Yeah? But this allegation has been made, um, and, and, and um, this is a, a, a true danger uh, for the system um, if um, it's something that absolutely has to be avoided, um, uh, judicial activism. Um, as I said, I think, in the very beginning, and as I slightly uh, clarified later, uh, the system, that will be my concluding words, uh, the system, the WTO dispute settlement system is currently going through uh, a very difficult period. Um, there are currently only four of the seven uh, appellate body members uh, on the appellate body. Um, the appointment of new of three new appellate body members um, is uh, blocked in the DSB. Um, uh, this reflects um, uh, a deep crisis. Um, and um, uh, in order to deblock the crisis, um, a very important WTO member um, insists that um, 
um, systemic concerns that that member has with regard to the current um, uh, system are, are, are addressed. Um, uh, not quite clear um, what that is. I mean, it obviously has to do uh, with um, uh, judicial activism, um, perceived judicial activism, but um, uh, it's not quite clear at this very moment, and we're now speaking February 2018, um, how we will uh, come out of this crisis. Um, but what is very clear to me, um, and I hope that this is something that is shared by all that listen to this lecture, that um, this world, um, this globalized world, um, um, cannot uh, be without a multilateral, rules-based dispute settlement system. Uh, you can't have countries decide on a unilateral basis um, what is right and wrong uh, in international trade. Uh, you need um, a dispute settlement system. And I think uh, that we have currently, we have a very good one. Uh, that in terms of international dispute settlement has unique features uh, that has proved to work very well. I very much hope um, that the system will be allowed to uh, further um, function and prosper. Thank you.